0: I'm going to talk about the four domains of mindfulness, the four areas of attention that can serve as objects of mindfulness. This is based on the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, which is a principle and fundamental text of the Pali Canon. And there are five reasons why I want to talk about it today. <laughs> The first is that it is this very text upon which this Vipassana practice is based. And throughout this week, we've systematically developed the instructions, beginning with the breath, and then including body sensations, and including feeling tone, and including mind states, and including the contents of mind, including thoughts. And that's the entire realm of our experience. And this very practice really follows this particular text. It's felt to be a very important text. It appears at two different points in the canon. I also wanted to talk about it because I want to re-clarify again that this is really a practice of paying attention to everything. It's not a breath practice. It's a practice in which we emphasize the skillful use of the breath as a means of focusing and concentrating the mind. But it's not a breath practice. It's a practice of paying attention. The fundamental instructions are, pay attention to everything. The four domains of mindfulness are everything. I also wanted to talk about it, this is my third reason, because it's coming near to the end of the retreat. It's not here yet, but it's almost here. And so some of the questions that people begin to have around this time is how can I continue to practice at home? People say I don't have time to practice. This practice you do all the time. When people say I don't have time to practice, they mostly mean I don't have time to sit you can pay attention to everything all day long. I do a lot of practice online in the supermarket. There's a lot of feelings that come up, usually, standing on line. A lot of mind states, a lot of thoughts. There's a lot of things to pay attention to. I do a lot of supermarket practice. <laughs> this is the fourth reason I want to talk about it. This particular text not only says how and what to practice, it says why to practice. I'm very interested in the why of practice. And it says it twice. The commentators all talk about the fact that this is one of the rare instances in a text where it says the why twice. It says it in the beginning and in the end. And it says that the Buddha said to his assemblage of monks, this is the sole way, monks. This is the sole way for the purification of beings for the uncovering of sorrow and lamentation for the destroying of pain and grief he says that in the beginning and he says that in the end That's fairly emphatic You think I thought what does that mean this is the sole way what is this This is paying attention to everything because that's what the text describes. Paying attention to everything is the sole way. Think about it. What happens if you pay attention to everything? If you pay attention to everything calmly, what you get to see in gradually more profound ways is that everything passes, that the nature of everything is impermanence, that it's... Passing away in its very arising. (laughs) That because of the ephemeral nature of all experience, there's no experience that can stay satisfactory. And that it's experience, just arising. It's empty. It arises and it passes away according to conditions. But there's nothing that has any permanence in it no experience, no event, nothing about ourselves. Is permanent. One gets to see as one appreciates all of these fundamental characteristics, the insights of this insight practice, that there's quite literally nothing to worry about. It's really the end of suffering. That's why we practice. It's not in order to pay attention, it's in order to pay attention in order to see what's true. We say in the West, as an expression, the truth will set us free. If the truth will set us free, then perhaps this is the sole way for the purification of beings, for the uncovering of sorrow and lamentation, for the end of pain and grief. I don't think that Buddhism has the exclusive path to paying attention to everything. I think that the Four Noble Truths is, just as the Four Noble Truths is the expression of truth in Buddhist language, it's plain truth. The Four Foundations of Mindfulness is the description of paying attention to everything in Buddhist language. The fifth reason I want to talk about it is if mindfulness is the key to insight, Insight is the key to liberation, and these are the four domains of mindfulness, the four things to pay attention to. I think that each of them, each of these domains, is a hologram. Each of them is a way to see all of the truths of experience, that paying attention to each of these domains of mindfulness is a route to insight and to liberation. So those are the five reasons why I want to talk about it, and now we'll talk about it. These are the four domains of mindfulness. We'll use uh, the definition that James used last night. Mindfulness is the balanced recognition of experience. It's knowing what's happening without grasping, without aversion, without delusion. Being awake to what's happening without clinging, without pushing it away. The first domain is the domain of contemplation of body, the domain of physical sensations. The breath is physical sensation. It isn't one physical sensation when you think about it. We call it breath. We say, pay attention to breathing. And that's a composite word. It's a signal. It's a summary. It's a symbol of a whole complex series of events that happens which we call breathing, changes in pressure and temperature and tingling and vibration and comfort and discomfort. We have all kinds of other physical sensations, tingling, pulsing, vibrating, throbbing, heat, cold, light. It's often an experience that as people settle down calm down a little bit, concentration begins to settle down and deepen, that people become aware of physical sensations that they aren't aware of in their ordinary mind states. The body begins to tingle or vibrate or pulse or throb, buzz. Sometimes they're pleasant feelings. Warm waves of pleasure come over the body. And then there's a tendency in the mind to want them to stay. And sometimes there are unpleasant feelings, tension, throbbing, stinging. And then there's a tendency in the mind to want them to go away. Both of those tendencies in the mind create a certain amount of tension, and a certain amount of striving, a certain amount of wanting, a certain amount of suffering in the mind. If we can be somewhat balanced amidst the whole array of physical sensations, if we can see them with some degree of calm, we see what's true about them, that they're always changing, that tingling becomes buzzing, becomes vibrations that disappear, that become heat, that become something else, that they're always changing, that nothing remains satisfactory There's no way that we can be comfortable forever. There's a lot of pain as people start to practice. Partly it's because we often try to sit in an unusual posture. Partly I think some of the discomforting feelings that come up in the body have nothing to do with the posture. They have to do with various kinds of tensions in the mind and the body from who knows when that as the mind begins to settle down, just begin to release themselves and make themselves evident to you. Lots of people describe their experience in interviews in that way. They say, I'm having a lot of body releases. You are, indeed. And sometimes they're pleasant and sometimes they're unpleasant. There's no way that you can determine when they happen and how they happen. They arise just according to conditions. Can't decide to have a body sensation or decide not to. Even if you sat in the most comfortable position that you could think of, it would eventually become uncomfortable. If you want to try this as an experiment, (laughs) you might try this as an exercise. It's a really extraordinary exercise. Sit in a chair sometime for a sitting. Sit in the most comfortable chair you can find, and sit entirely comfortable with your body, not not crossed anywhere, not tense anywhere. Sit comfortably and pay attention. Stay with your breath, stay with whatever comes up. For a while, your body is likely to be comfortable. By and by, it will cease to be comfortable. Perhaps it won't be uncomfortable in the way that sitting on the floor was, but just sitting still. By and by, it will want to move, and as you... Determined to stay sitting, you'd be aware of more and more restlessness in the body. Might be restlessness in the body and agitation in the body, might feel a sense of agitation in the mind. As you resolve to sit with that, you discover how much discomfort just sitting in a comfortable chair can bring. If you try to work with the mind, having it be open to its experience, moment to moment, you find how hard that is. That there's resistance, the mind becomes tense, agitated, begin to feel that you'll explode if you sit there one more minute. And then when the bell rings, suddenly, all of the tension in the mind is gone (laughs) before you even move. And you get to see how much agitation... How much pain, how much suffering we make for ourselves just by worrying about uncomfortableness. It's the worry. This uncomfortableness will go on forever that really contributes to the degree of discomfort. When the bell rings, you could sit a while more. (laughs) You get to see, as you watch ba- body sensations arise and pass away, how impersonal it is. They just all happen. They come and they go, just like clouds. It's a good time now to talk a little bit about breath practice as one aspect of paying attention to body sensations. Because as 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 we talk tonight, and as I continue to describe that, uh, there are really Four domains of paying attention, and really was supposed to pay attention to everything. People may think, oh dear, I've made such effort to pay attention to my breath, and all of a sudden, here's an instruction that the real instruction is pay attention to everything. Paying attention to breath is a very skillful practice. It's not a better way to see the truth, but it is often a more accessible way to begin to see the truth. And there are several reasons for that. One is that we're all breathing, all the time. So that if we said, look for a prominent mind state, and there wasn't a prominent mind state, pay attention to prominent mind states and they're not there. Pay attention to your heartbeat and you don't feel it. Pay attention to strong body sensations and they're not there. The breath is always there. can always pay attention to breath. You can see all of those three characteristics of experience in the breath. You don't really need to look at the rest of your experience. If you think about it, it's very impermanent. Here's a breath in and a breath out, and it's all gone. Here arises another, and it's all gone. It's just arising and passing away. Also see that there's no degree of comfort in that. There's no comfortable resting place in that whole experience of breathing. If you don't breathe for a while, some discomfort arises. And then you take a big breath in, that's wonderful. But if you don't let the breath out, some discomfort arises. So you breathe out. And that's comfortable again. But then that's not comfortable. And so you (laughs) breathe in. (laughs) Moment to moment validation of there is no experience in which there's a place of continuing comfortableness. You also have a moment-to-moment view of that it's totally impersonal. There isn't anyone in you that's saying, breathe now, now breathe out. And if you thought there was during the day, sometimes we try to control our breath. We don't stay up all night vigilantly remembering to breathe. The breathing just happens. It just happens. Sometimes people have quite a profound awareness of it as they sit and are really quietly paying attention to the rising and falling of the breath, the in and out of the breath, sometimes it's really quite clear that it's just happening. It isn't happening by anyone or to anyone. It's just happening. It's also a very good place, paying attention to the breath It's a very good place to begin practice because the breath to begin with is quite plain and you begin to watch rising and falling or in and out it's rather plain and not too complicated it's true in fact that as your attention (coughs) as your concentration deepens and your attention becomes refined you begin to see that the breath is really a quite a complex phenomenon but in the beginning it's really quite plain And more or less, unless there's something unusual going on with your health or your breathing facility, more or less a neutral activity. And so paying attention to the breath is a really good way to establish concentration, to really calm yourself down. The instruction for this practice, this instruction for life, is pay attention to everything. But it's really true that it's hard to pay attention to everything. It's very complex, it's happening very fast. And we're usually, we have been habituated to uh, not being clear in our ability to grasp what's going on. We need, in order to pay attention to everything, some degree of calmness and some degree of concentration, at least for starters, so that it makes sense to pay attention to breath. Both instructions are true. This is a practice of paying attention to everything. And in order to facilitate the ability to do that, it's very helpful to spend some time paying attention to breath. So breath is one of the, (coughs) it's many of the body sensations. So breath is part of the domain of contemplation of the body, physical sensations. The second domain for paying attention is the domain of feelings. And feelings has a particular meaning. It doesn't mean feelings as in, you hurt my feelings. And it doesn't mean feelings as in, what are your feelings about that? There are only, in this lexicon, three feelings. And they really are feeling tone. And they're the feeling tones of pleasant, unpleasant or painful, and neutral. And they accompany every experience. One of them accompanies every experience. And it's very important to recognize them and to know them. If liberation comes from insights that arise from mindfulness, the balanced recognition of each moment, or better yet, if liberated moments are moments of mindfulness, moments that are free of greed and hatred and delusion, then non-awareness of feeling tone is really what prevents us from being fully present in the moment. This is why when pleasant feeling tone is present and we're not aware of it, there's a possibility that the mind begins to grasp and to cling onto the experience. When unpleasant feeling tone is present and we're not aware of it, the mind really moves away from the experience and closes down. When neutral feeling tone is present and we're not aware of it, the possibility exists that we go to sleep a little bit. We don't pay a lot of attention to it. Think about it in your regular life. You're going along during the day. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. okay. Neutral, 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 neutral. Oh, I don't like it. Oh, I like it. We really pick out the stuff that we like and we don't like. The neutral, we just pass it by. It's not very significant to us. If you think about it in regular life, if you took a whole day to do feeling-tone practice, it would be amazing. And see that every moment is somewhat charged positively or negatively, except for those that are neutral, with I like it and I don't like it. Oh, good, the sun is shining. I like it. "Uh Uh-huh, I can't find my car keys. I don't like it. Ah, no one on the highway. That's great. I can buzz right in. Ah, there's a traffic accident. Now I'll have to wait. I'll be late. Up, down, up, down. I like it, I don't like it. <laughs> it's a wonder we make it through a day, just on a minor thing. <clears throat> if we're aware of feeling tone, then we can be open to all the experience. That doesn't mean that you like all the experience. That's so critical to know that. Don't have to like the experience to be open to it. I, it just pops into my mind to tell you a grandson's story. I, uh, I, uh, And it's a convent story at the same time, I've been, as we all have been thinking a lot about this lovely convent and the fire yesterday. I have a lot of friends in this community, and my friend Mary lived in that building. And I took my grandson to visit her one day, oh, six or eight months ago, and he was in two, two and a half, something like that. We got out of the car... And he looked up that huge flight of stairs to that formidable building, big doors, and he said, I don't like it, Grandma. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, we're going anyway. We're going to visit Aunt Mary, and she lives here, so we're going. And we start going up those formidable stairs. And really, coming to the top of the stairs, he really began to tremble. And he's really a very sensitive, wonderful boy, and I love him enormously. And he said, I don't like it, Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, it's all right. You don't have to like it, but I'll carry you. I'll pick you up, and you can sit on my lap. But it's okay. You don't have to like it. We're visiting Aunt Mary. And he was okay, and he sat on my lap. And I felt good about that. I felt good about that. Actually, I felt that I was passing down unto the fifth generation lesson of my grandmother, who told me in similar circumstances, you don't have to like it that's an extraordinary message doesn't mean I don't care about you it means you can stand not liking not liking is an acceptable bearable mind state but you have to notice the not liking to be able to bear it can remember when I was uh, early on in my practice I discovered that if I concentrated hard enough I could usually erase pain in my body. Now, the truth is I wasn't being mindful of the pain. I thought I was, but actually I realized later on what I was doing was I was concentrating very hard. In very concentrated mind states, you can make anesthesia in the body, and for people who have some facility with concentration, it's a thing that they're prone to do. Anyway, I was having a terrible headache, and I was thinking to myself, well, it's okay, because I'll really bring my attention to that headache. And unbeknownst to me, also having the thought, and it'll go away if I bring my attention to it, which is the moment of aversion that I was not being aware of. So I concentrate on the headache. I used to have as a visual image, you remember the cartoon strip of Superman with his Krypton concentration, boring (laughs) holes in the side of battleships. I am concentrating like Superman on my headache, and it isn't going away. Finally, I decide, comes to me, it's not going away because I actually have aversion to this headache. I actually don't like it, and I want it to go away. So I say to myself, okay, I'm going to have to recognize aversion, aversion, aversion. Now I'm open to this headache, whatever wants to happen will <laughs> happen. But the truth is that I wasn't, and there's nothing, you know, there's no place to hide. It's the mind, and you can't fake it out. There's no place to hide. The end of that is, what do you do when you discover aversion in the mind? Saying aversion is nothing. Feeling aversion is a whole other thing. Feeling aversion is a texture of the mind. Say, so, okay, now I feel. Mind with aversion has a certain sort of texture, certain sort of tension in it, certain sort of closed-down quality, which will bring us to the next domain of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of mind states, mind state of aversion, mind of joy, mind of delight. Some mind states have particularly strong body states that are usually part of them. Mind state of rage usually has pretty pronounced body state with it. Some mind states don't have such pronounced body states along with it. I'll tell you some mind states, and you feel them, or know them. I'll mention them. Contentment, calm, confusion, lust, despair, dismay, disappointed, humiliated, irritated, angry enraged, sad, delighted, grateful. They have a different texture, each of them. Mind states are perfectly valid, perfectly valuable objects of attention. Somebody asked today about where should I pay attention to the breath, here or here or here? And Jack's answer was, wherever it is. And the other answer that goes along with it is, whenever it is. Whenever it's the strongest thing that's present, then you pay attention to the breath. When mind states are stronger and you're relatively calm, you pay attention to them. People come to uh, interviews and they, they have sort of a, An embarrassed kind of confessional sense, they say, I could hardly stay with the breath all day long. I was so filled and overwhelmed with joy, or with grief, or with sadness, or with something, and I could not get my mind to pay attention to the breath. So you don't need to. You stay with what's prominent for you. You stay with that strong mind state. We use the breath as a skillful means to focus the attention, to regain our balance when we feel scattered. But this is not a practice of paying attention to breath. It's a practice of paying attention to the predominant experience in each moment of experience as it arises and passes away. Then see all the things that are true about experience in the mind states. They arise and they pass away, just like breath. There are no permanently satisfactory mind states. Whatever mind state we've had in our life, no matter how glorious or how awful, it isn't here now. They arise and they pass away. And they arise and pass away according to conditions, not because there's any thing that wills them. They come and they go. Yesterday was a very good, well, yesterday was a very strong day for the realization of the changing mind states. Here here were everybody practicing away, many people reporting today with some degree of calm, some degree of contentment, some degree of balance, and all of a sudden there are fire engines and there is smoke and there is helicopters. And it was a very radical shift in mind state for everyone. It was supposed to be. And this is not to suggest that everybody should have sat calm through it. It was meant... I mean, you're supposed to react to stimuli. Really amazing to see and feel is how the mind shifts and shifts and shifts and shifts according to habits. Everybody, I'm sure, was... um, experiencing that day in a different way according to what their past experience has been with conditions of danger, with conditions of fire, with conditions of loss, with conditions of fear. Everybody had a different experience. And then when I was sitting last night, we sat together at 9.30 at night. It was quiet and it was cool and there were no airplanes circling and no smell of smoke. And the whole event of the day had passed. Everybody's mind states were in different places, but you could watch throughout the day, mind state, mind state, mind state, mind state, mind state. And yesterday was a very big dramatic thing to happen. Mind states can shift enormously with very small really non-dramatic, in fact, insignificant things. Once upon a time, I looked at an interview sheet when I was sitting and my name was not where I thought it should be on the day that I thought it should be there. Maybe an experience that happened to you. I was at that time doing practice that was very rewarding to me. I felt fine about my practice. I felt very calm, I felt very balanced, I felt delighted with my practice. Was looking forward to seeing my teacher and talking about it. Name was not on the sheet. And I was devastated. I could watch the mind state just crumble <laughs> before my very eyes. It was all gone. Then I thought, well, good that I don't have an interview because I have nothing to talk about. <laughs> Begin to think that those mind states are a razor's edge. We are walking on a razor's edge. We think we're balanced, but one false move,
1: (laughs) it's like blowing,
0: and we blow right over. So, watching mind states arising and passing away. I have one more thing to say about mind states. Normally, people notice dramatic mind states, dramatic painful mind states, or dramatic pleasant mind states. We tend not to notice so much undramatic mind states. People will come into interviews, and they'll say, not much is happening. And then you say, well, what's going on? Do you sit and walk? They say, oh, yeah, I sit. Say, well, what's happening? your mind wandering much? They say, no, 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 I stay right there with the breath. And Actually, they say, you know, I feel quite calm. I feel contented. As a matter of fact, I never felt so calm in my whole life. And people don't notice calm. I have a friend of mine who told me that she was doing some period of intense practice and she said, I came on this new mind state and I was looking for the word to describe it. It was an entirely new mind state. <laughs> and she said, finally, I decided that what I was was calm. <laughs> and I just was,
1: I just was so
0: unused to being calm that I didn't recognize it. That we look for drama, but in fact we can have a predominant mind state that's quite a contented, calm, quiet one. And when it is, and there isn't anything else much happening, and the calm, contented mind state is the most prominent thing, you can stay with the breath a little bit. Actually, you don't have to stay with the breath in those mind states. You can be aware of the calm and the contentment. From time to time, what you'll find, you make notes for yourself, this is calm. I am calm. My mind is filled with calm. This is how calm feels. From time to time, the breath represents itself, and you notice it. You say, oh, there's a breath in and out. There's a rising and falling. And calmness is here. This is calm. Calmness is here. That's really using the mind state as the focus of your attention. The breath comes and goes. There's a fourth domain of mindfulness. Mindfulness of body sensations, but mindfulness of feeling tone, mindfulness of mind state. Mindfulness of contents of mind really means mindfulness of everything else that wasn't previously mentioned in those three other domains. Normally when we give instructions on it, we talk about thoughts and mindfulness of thinking and the thinking process. If you notice, the thinking process has the same characteristics as feelings or body sensations or mind states. Thoughts come and go. You don't will them to come. You don't will them to go. They arise and pass away according to conditions. None of them remain satisfactory. The most lovely thought ends, even you don't want it to. The most terrible thought arises unbidden. You didn't ask for it. They just come and go. Mostly in in practicing here, we've talked about noticing, um, recognizing the character of thought in terms of planning or remembering Not particularly to investigate the nature of what we're planning or or remembering, but more because as we notice it, while planning is happening, it tends to drop away and the breath tends to represent itself. And it's actually very hard to get involved in plans and stay mindful or involved in memories and stay mindful. So thoughts come and go. As we recognize them for what they are, they normally just disappear. Sometimes people think they're not supposed to think in doing this practice, and that as long as thoughts appear that they're not practicing right, that's not so. Thoughts come and go, like moods, like body sensations, like tinglings and vibrations. Nobody ever thinks that tinglings and vibrations shouldn't come and go. They all just come and go. In the practice, we tend to try to stay away from reflective thoughts or ruminative thoughts because they take your attention away from the here and now. But otherwise, thoughts come and go. And there are particular thoughts which in the text, in the discourse, in the text on the foundations of mindfulness, there are particular thoughts which it's recommended that might be good to notice when one has them. And I'll tell you some of those particular thoughts as the last domain of mindfulness. Recognizing these particular kinds of thoughts helps to keep a certain amount of balance in the mind, a certain amount of evenness and fluidity. It helps the mind from getting stuck in any particular experience. First thought that it's helpful to recognize as it comes through is this is a hindrance, what I'm experiencing, or this is a multiple hindrance attack that I'm experiencing. It's a little bit different from saying, I have anger, I have lust, lust is present, anger is present. Sometimes that's really a predominant mind state. That mind state is there, and it's valuable to feel it, explore it, be with it, sense it, watch it as it dissipates and changes. There are times in which it's also very helpful. It gives you kind of a step back or a balance to say, this is a hindrance, this is a mind full of hindrance we've mentioned several times multiple hindrance attacks so i thought I, if i had time i would tell you a multiple hindrance attack so i will this is a multiple hindrance attack and i know that it happened to me on october 31st 1988 because that was halloween and i was in barry and i had been doing some long period of sitting And I came into the meditation hall at night after some period of walking, and I felt wonderful. My practice was going really nicely and smoothly, and my body felt fine, and I felt great. And I came in, and the room was all darkened. It was evening. It was Halloween. And all around the room, while we had been out doing walking, people had put pumpkins, jack-o'-lanterns, carved in the most wonderful faces. People had really knocked themselves out, staff people doing great carving. I was so moved by it. I was so pleased. I felt wonderful. And I came to my Zafu, and I noticed that everybody's Zafu had a piece of candy on it, trick or treat. And I felt wonderful. And then I looked around, and I saw that everybody's candy was different. (laughs) (laughs) And that I had great bubble gum. (laughs) And the person next to me had better candy that I liked, had candy that I liked better, and I was a little bit mildly irritated. <laughs> disappointed, irritated. But I sat down and I kind of talked myself out of it. I said, "Well, you don't really want any sugar anyway. it's no good for the clarity. you wouldn't need it anyway. If you had it, forget about that. A little bit annoyed, but then the annoyance sort of there, but I look around, and nobody's come back yet, and especially Roger, who sits in front of me. He's not back yet, and I think to myself, I could put this great bubble gum on Roger
1: Zafu. <laughs> I
0: would not take his candy, but I had, a, I had a lust. I had a desire. I'll give Roger this bubble gum, and he'll feel so happy because he'll have two things. As so I had a desire to do that, and I did it. Put my bubble gum on Roger Zafu. Then I began to think, that was probably a dumb thing to put there <laughs> Because now Roger will come back. He won't know who gave him the bubble gum. He'll think he has a secret admirer. It'll upset his mind. <laughs> got very annoyed with myself, really very restless. I thought to myself, you know better than that. That was such a dumb thing to do. You're supposed to know how to do this practice. You're supposed to be teaching this practice. How could you, how could you have intruded on another person's space by giving them something to whiz up their mind? With? So that's three so far. The next thing I think is, I'm a terrible yogi. Look at that. I haven't learned so far. I haven't. I'd, look at that. Everything I knew out the window. I did a thing <laughs> all the time. I'm telling people, don't send notes, don't communicate with other people. I just gave Roger a piece of gray bubble gum. <laughs> <laughs> by that time, and maybe 30 seconds has gone by since seeing the bubble gum for the first time, I'm in total dismay. My, my mind is totally fatigued, sloth, torpor. I am, I am totally unestablished in mindfulness. And I'd walked in 30 seconds before in the best frame of mind. That's a multiple hindrance attack. I actually sat down and said to myself, you've just had a multiple hindrance attack. <laughs> It was actually a very big help to be able to do that because I didn't spend a long time being down on myself. You said you had a multiple hindrance attack. Look around, look at the jack-o' lanterns, take some breath, forget about it. It was an attack. You let yourself be you did an unskillful action which let yourself be way open for an attack. It's just an attack. You breathe, you look at the jack-o' lantern, happiness comes back mindfulness comes back. That's a multiple hindrance attack. But it's very helpful to be able to say, instead of, I am so terrible, or it's all gone, or it's totally a lost cause, to say, this is a multiple hindrance attack I'm having. How can I catch my breath? How can I relax? Well, I can take some deep breaths, I can look around, I can appreciate the jack-o'-lanterns. There's another very important thought. This is the second. There's going to be three important thoughts to notice. The first thought is, this is a hindrance, or more. The second thought is this is a factor of enlightenment that's established in me. As we sit, all of us, all of the various factors of enlightenment begin to be established in us. And we begin to feel good. All of a sudden we feel calm. All of a sudden we feel a little equanimity, or a lot of equanimity, or rapture arises. We begin to feel very good about it. It's a wonderful sense of a feeling. begin to have a little bit possibility of the mind beginning to cling beginning to want it to stay one way of retaining a certain amount of balance in the mind reminding ourselves that there's no place to rest in no value to staying is you say oh good this is a factor of enlightenment this is calm this is equanimity this is rapture this is a factor of enlightenment just notice it don't have, to, don't have to hold on. There's no point to hold on to it. There are six others that I need to establish. And they all need to get balanced anyway. Just relax in it. So you don't have to make a big deal out of it. You don't have to make a big deal about the hindrance. You don't have to make a big deal out of the factors of enlightenment. So that's what that is. And it's just the same. You say, that's what that is. And now I'll take a breath. And now I'll relax. There's one last kind of thought that's helpful to notice. And that thought is, this is an insight. Oh, I realize I get it this is this is impermanence every once in a while we have such a sense of things passing I frequently when I'm doing intensive practice I'm so aware of the, the sunrise and the sunset and another day and another day and another day Or well, yesterday that heavy heavy afternoon and the quietness of the evening it passes, and it passes, and it passes. Sometimes we have an awareness of impermanence, and it's really quite terrifying. We realize that it's all passing. It's disappearing under our feet, just before our eyes, in every moment. And sometimes that's quite alarming. Oh, I had better be in my life, because this moment is the only one I've got. And sometimes it's quite liberating. See, it's easy. I just have to be in every moment. That's all I've got. just have to be there. And it's passing, and it's passing. Sometimes we have liberations, about uh, insights about suffering. And sometimes they're really quite intense. Either we become in touch with our own pain and our own suffering and the tension that we make in the mind over our experience, or we have some really uh, profound sense of everyone's suffering and indeed global suffering. That's a really good insight to have. It's really the first noble truth. There is suffering. I remember uh, one time uh, I was having quite, quite a profound experience of not being able to look around at anything without seeing how pervaded with pain every experience is. I remember I went to see my teacher, and it was as if I had put on glasses. You know, in the Emerald City, you put on green glasses and everything looks green. Put on dukkha glasses, everything looks impossibly suffering. And I came into my interview, and I, I talked about that. I said, it's just it's terrible with suffering. And in essence, when you do that, when you have that insight, uh, we'll agree with you. There is suffering. And then I was about to leave my interview. I was going out the door. I had my hand on the doorknob, and my teacher said to me, Sylvia, and I said, yes. Teacher said, uh, be very careful not to let this awareness, this insight into suffering condition an aversion to life experience i said thank you very much i went out and i closed the door and i thought how how will i do that how will i keep it from conditioning just despair about life experience because that's what you feel like in that moment but that's an awareness of the first noble truth there is suffering and comes an awareness of the second one from our own practice from our own experience That there is suffering and that the cause of suffering is clinging. The cause of suffering is wanting. And that there is an end to suffering. That's another insight. And that the end of suffering is the path. Sometimes there's a quite profound insight about the selflessness of all experience. might be breathing sometimes and really know it's just happening. We you might be walking sometime. And you really know, it's just happening. It's just happening according to what went before it. Everything, Every moment conditions the next. But it's just <laughs> happening. Without a sense of it's happening to me. And sometimes, like the alarming way in which suffering can strike us sometime, or the alarming way in which we can see impermanence, sometimes that's really alarming. I'm not here. There are other ways in, when, in which that falls on the mind, and it's really very liberating. It makes a lot of ease. That's just the way it is. We are all experienced unfolding. We unfold according to conditions, always changing, nothing permanent. So those are very important kinds of thoughts to notice. They're part of that fourth domain of mindfulness. In some of the commentary on that sutta, on that discourse, on the foundations of mindfulness, talks about uh, how important the the particular discourse is, that it appears twice, that it says twice, this is the soul way. And there's also a story told about when the Buddha was old, and in the last rain season of his life, and quite sick, and it was thought that his death was near, and uh, there was some consternation that he might die without giving his teaching and giving the instructions one more time. There's a story that on a particular day when he felt better and arose from where he had been lying down, his attendant, Ananda, who had been his chief disciple and attendant and with him for a long time, was so overjoyed to see him up and teaching and express that joy about now you will be able to give us the instructions and teach us again. And the Buddha, in talking to him, said, relative to the instructions, he said, be your own refuge, Ananda, be your own refuge. Don't take any other refuge. Let the teaching be your island. Let the teaching be your refuge, contemplating the body and the feelings and the mind and mind objects. Let the teaching be your refuge. That is the whole teaching, this teaching of mindfulness, mindfulness in all the realms of our experience. And it's just the same practice here as it is in the world. Here it's more quiet and more slow less complicated but it's exactly the same practice let's sit for just a few minutes This talk was given by Sylvia Burst at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on July 13, 1990. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.